0: We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Turn to John chapter number 4, the Gospel of John, chapter number 4. I want to begin with verse number 1 in just a moment uh, with the message, John chapter 4. Now, I want to bring you a message today as God leads me, and I hope you'll pray for me as I try to bring the message on on worship. What does it mean to worship? I've been thinking about this subject for several Sundays. I I had it upon my mind, started to preach on it last Sunday, and had something else uh, come to me. But I, I feel God would be pleased if I went ahead with this general thought that's been upon me for several weeks now about the matter of worshiping God, worshiping God. Now, let's begin with verse number one, chapter four, the Gospel of John. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus um, uh, baptized, uh, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples did, uh, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Uh, He left Judea, that means he left Jerusalem. Judea uh, is the area around about Jerusalem, and he started north, going to Galilee. Galilee is about 50 miles north. Um, Jerusalem but it must needs go through Samaria in order to get to Galilee you have to go through Samaria now the city is not called Sam- Samaria today it was called Syca in that day uh, but it's called Nabalus in our day it was named by one of the S- Roman Caesars Nabalus and down through these 2,000 years it's still called Nabalus but in the Bible it's called Syca it's called Shechem, and it's called most commonly Samaria when you speak of Samaria, you oftentimes think of the town, the city, the village. Now it's a pretty large city. Uh, Samaria, I expect, is a city the size of maybe the size of Easley or uh, Anderson, maybe uh, not larger than that, I wouldn't think. But it's an ancient city, mostly uh, a Samaritan city. Now the Samaritans were part Jews, uh, but they were not, uh, not full blooded Jews like those down in Jerusalem, in Judah. Uh, you'll find this uh, woman that we're about to read about. Uh, who talked about her father Abraham and in a sense Abraham was her father but she was not a full-blooded Jew like uh, those down in Judea you remember back when the the kingdom was divided after the death of Solomon and uh, Rehoboam the son of Solomon uh, ruled the two tribes in the south from Jerusalem the capital city while Jeroboam, who was recalled from exile out of Egypt, became the king of Israel, the ten tribes. And the capital city was set up in Samaria. Uh, Sica, Anabalus, as it's called in our day, was the capital city. And uh, uh, and the ten northern tribes became terribly apostate. I mean, they got further and further and further away from the Lord. Down and maybe, in the time of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, probably the two most wicked and idolatrous kings of Israel in all of Israel's history. Probably Ahab and Jezebel led the people of of Israel further away from God than any other one person in all the history of Israel. But it got increasingly worse until uh, they were carried away into the Assyrian bondage that we've been studying about uh, some in our Sunday school lesson. And all those years, Israel, Ephraim, it was called in our Sunday school lesson today, uh, was jealous of Judah, envied Judah. And they envied Judah because Solomon's temple was there and because the holy city Jerusalem was in Judah and because uh, Judah uh, still maintained uh, the true pure worship of Jehovah God in the temple right straight on down through the years. While up uh, up in Israel, Jeroboam set up golden calves, you remember. And he said to the people of Israel, These be the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And that's some indication of the idolatry that characterized Israel from the time of Rehoboam right straight on down to the, uh, to the captivity under Assyria uh, some years later. Uh, further and further they get away from God. These Samaritans were part Jews, but they were, not, they were a mixed breed of people. And because of that, the Jews of Judah had nothing to do with the Samaritans of Samaria. Uh, somehow the Samaritans were the off scowings of that generation. As far as the Jew is concerned, he had nothing to do with them religiously. Uh, the Jews worshipped at Jerusalem. And the Samaritans worshipped up there uh, around those golden calves and in the mountains of Samaria. And they had, they had, no, uh, they had no contact, not only uh, religiously but socially. They didn't intermarry. They were completely segregated people, though they were part Jews. And so he must needs go through, uh, through Samaria. Then he cometh to the city of Samaria, which is called Sica, near to the parcel of grand that, uh, ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. That's right, it's there. I've been to that well. As you go into uh, Nabalus or Sica today, Samaria, just on the right of the road as you go into the town is a shrine. And uh, one of the famous Catholic churches, the Catholics have built churches over everything in Israel, except the Sea of Galilee, and if they get one over that, they'd cover it up. But I guess the Sea of Galilee is too big for them to cover up. But they cover up everything else with a shrine of some kind, and so they covered up Jacob's well. You have to pay to go down to see it now, and if you uh, uh, can't make pictures, you have to buy their pictures. They commercialize on Jacob's well, but I've seen it. It's not a large well, maybe... um, Uh, that big around maybe, but it goes way down into the ground and folks still drink water. I I drank some of the water out of that well myself. Now, Jacob's well was there. That well, of course, dated back to the days of uh, Jacob and to the days of uh, Joseph uh, in the ancient uh, history of Israel before the, uh, the captivity down in the land of Egypt. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey about 50 miles across the mountains, you believe me, Some rugged mountains, uphill, downhill, up and down, all the way from Jerusalem up to Samaria, Jesus weary. And he sat on the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And there cometh a woman of Samaria, a woman, not a Jew, but a a woman of Samaria, uh, to draw water. And Jesus said to that woman, give me to drink. For his disciples were going away into the city to buy food, to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto Jesus, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, as I set forth a moment ago. And the woman was somewhat startled at the Lord, and the Lord evidently, was very evidently a Jew. I mean, you could look at the Lord and recognize his features. I don't think I, at this point this woman knew to whom she actually talked. Uh, She supposed him to be a stranger, but she could recognize it had the features of Judah, the features of a Jew. And she said to herself, why in the world is he requesting water of me? Why, these Jews have nothing to do with us. We're half and they have nothing to do with us. They have no dealings with the Samaritans. But Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God, and if thou knewest who it is that, that saith unto thee, give me drink, Thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. Uh, You have no rope, you have no bucket, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And it is, a hundred feet down to the water, I expect. And the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle. Now here is uh, what I said a moment ago. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Though this woman was a Samaritan, she had Jewish blood in her. And she said, Our father Jacob, are you greater than him? Why, he drew water for himself. He drew water for his children. He drew water for his camels. Jesus answered and said unto him, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. And how true that is. Now you have to have the water to get along physically but you have to have more water periodically you may drink it but you'll thirst again and that's why the woman came to draw water she no doubt many times had drawn water from the well and carried it home and used it up come draw water again uh, in our day in fact they don't have the conveniences in israel that we enjoy in america here in our beloved land we go and uh, to the water cooler and turn the uh, faucet on and we drink that good water, that cool water. As old brother Barrett said, Preacher, shut your mouth. You know, he used to say that to me when I started talking about something good to, to eat or drink. He'd say, shut your mouth. I keep talking about water. Some of you folks get up and go out on me. I better uh, change the subject right quick. But you know how wonderful it is to turn the faucet on and drink that good water. We enjoy so many things in America. But over there, they don't have that. They have to go to the well and carry the water on their shoulders to their homes, and then come back and get other water, carry it to their homes, and use it up like that. They they don't until this day, many places don't have running water as we enjoy in our land. But Jesus said, "Whoso drinketh of this water shall thirst again. It'll satisfy momentarily, but you'll be back at the ninth hour. You'll come again and you'll draw water again. But whoso drinketh of the water that I give unto him." shall never thirst amen amen i thirst sometimes for physical water but i do not thirst for spiritual water my soul is satisfied spiritually sometimes my body calls for food and i become unsatisfied physically sometimes my body calls for water and i become unsatisfied physically but i want to submit to you that i never become unsatisfied spiritually In all these years that I've been saved by the grace of God, I have never been but satisfied with the Savior. I drank of him, and I found him to be my satisfying potion. And he quenched the thirst of my soul. And today, I say to you, I thirst not. I want to be like the Lord. I want to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. I want to please the Lord in my life, but as far as my spiritual man is concerned, he is today satisfied with old-time religion. Somebody said, I'm searching for the truth. Somebody said, I'm going here and try what they've got, and I'll try this, and I'll try the other, and maybe I can find truth somewhere down the line. My friend, you're not going to find it that way. And to begin with, you and I that know the Lord, we don't have to search at this point, or this point, or that point. We've, dr- we've tasted of Him and found Him to be our satisfying potion. And we today are completely satisfied having drank of the water that our Lord gave to us many years ago and being satisfied until this very day. Jesus said, "Whoso shall drink of the water that I, given to him, shall never thirst." And some of you in this building or by the radio, You're thirsty, you're hungry, you're dissatisfied. You move to and fro, you try this, you try the other. You're you're discontent, you're unhappy. The job doesn't satisfy, your family doesn't satisfy, your wealth doesn't satisfy. It seems that nothing you do really satisfies you. And you move from this to the other, seeking you know not what. Oh, if only you could come to know the grace of God. For the Lord is gracious. If you'd only come to know the grace of God, your days of searching would then come to an end. And the rest of your mortal days, you could enjoy fellowship with the Savior. Oh, but preacher, you're supposed to say that. Well, try Jesus. Try Jesus. Actually, you're not qualified to gain, say, my testimony. If you've never been saved, you don't know whether I'm telling the truth or not. You may believe my testimony, and I hope you will, and come to know the Lord. But if you don't believe my testimony, then try it for yourself. And you'll come out just as I am, altogether whole and saved by the grace of God and satisfied by heaven's water. But the water that I shall give to him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. That fountain never runs dry. Uh, People that get born again don't have to get saved over and over again, do we? We come to the Savior one time and get born again. You don't have to go back and say, Oh Lord, improve the job or do it over again. No. You get born again, out of you springs up a well of water everlastingly. That fountain never runs dry. And you can glean from it and drink from it and refresh yourself from it as you need. Whenever you need it, there it is. We draw water out of the wells of salvation. Says the Bible, and how true that is. Being born again, we draw water from that whenever we thirst, whenever we desire. Sometimes at home, you uh, you get a real refreshing from the Lord. You might might sometimes at home be a little bit discouraged and a little bit defeated, and you begin to meditate and think, and you begin to sing, you begin to pray, and after a while you can't explain how it happens, but after a while something begins to move on the inside. And the first thing you know, you're drinking of the wells of salvation. And the despondency takes wings and flies away. The discouragement is banished. And the first thing you know, you're singing to make your melody in your heart to the Lord. in that great? God can do that. And he does that. Out of you, he said, shall spring up everlasting life. And water that'll never be quenched. Never uh, stop flowing. And the woman said, sir. Note two times she said, Sir, to the Lord, I appreciate that fact. She respected this Jew, to say the least. Give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now I want you to notice selfish motive at that point. I think the woman was more concerned about her aching back than she was her thirsty soul and her thirsty body. Now I'm sure she was thirsty in her body physically or she would not come to draw the water. But she was concerned about that heavy load and a pretty good sized pail of water on a woman's shoulder i would cause uh, some some pain no doubt she said that i may not have to come every day or three times a day and draw water give to me that i may go home and not ever have to come back and draw no more that i shall never thirst another time did you know you don't get salvation on that kind of basis Uh, God's not going to save you only as a fox game. God's not going to save you only as a convenience. He's not going to allow everything to come your way. If you're not willing in turn to dedicate and consecrate and sacrifice and sanctify your lives unto the Savior, I doubt seriously if God will give you that water. He'll let you keep on carrying it. He'll let you keep on drawing that water. God knows the motive and the intent of your soul and mind. And he wants salvation only as a convenience when you come to die. And only as a fire escape to keep you out of hell. Well, you're not apt to get it like that. And so Jesus didn't give the water to the woman on that basis. Give me this water that I'll not have to come and draw anymore. Give me this water that I'll never thirst anymore. It'd be mighty convenient. I come now three times a day to draw water and if you gave me this water, I'd never have to come back. And I could sit down and talk my neighbors and gossip. And so just give me this water and I won't have to come back. No, you don't get salvation like that. But if you ever get thirsty enough to say, Lord, I want this water from the wells of salvation more than life, then God will give you that water. But he's not apt to give it to you until you do. If you want salvation for a selfish motive, you disqualify yourself before you ever come to the Savior. But if you want salvation to God's glory, and if you want to put yourself on the altar to God's glory, then God will give you water from the wells of salvation. Well, let's see what happened. Jesus said, go call your husband and come hither. That's an amazing thing. So far as we know, the Lord had never seen this woman. And the woman had never known the Lord. Up until this point. And here Jesus talks like he knows her. As well as you'd know a cousin. Or a relative or neighbor. Go call thy husband said the Savior. Now let's get it settled in our mind. That Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from the eye of God. And this woman awakened to this startling reality. That God knew all about her. Jesus knew all about her. And he knows all about each of us in this building today nothing is hidden from the eyes of god cannot be hidden from the eyes of god god knows and so jesus said go call your husband and the woman said uh i have no husband and she spoke the truth at that particular point i have no husband jesus said that's well said you told the truth and i happen to know that to be the truth i have no husband said the lord for you have had five husbands oh brother her mailing address dress must have been uh, uh, Beverly Hills in Hollywood, must have, been, must have been Hollywood. She must have been a movie star or something like that. Thou hast had five husbands. She was in the husband business, wasn't she? She would have been a 1973 model if I ever saw one. She would have been a miniskirt gal more than likely. Oh, yeah, she was, a, she was really keyed up for that day or for our day. I've had five husbands, she said. Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is really not your husband at all. You're living without the bond of matrimony. You shack up with a man now. In this, you've told the truth. You have no husband, but you've had five of them. And you're living in one with one now, outside the convenience of matrimony. Now, that must have been a pretty vile sort of a woman. She must have been a pretty strange uh, character, vile sort of a character. Uh, She needed the the water, no doubt about that. She was free in her living and loose in in her morals and loose in her conduct. And there's a lot of people in the world like that today. God have mercy. The people get fouled up to that degree. Now I want you to note something. When the Lord touched the problem in that woman's life, she changed the subject immediately. And she said in the next verse, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And before the Lord could answer, she said, said, our fathers. She gets away from what the Lord has been talking about. The Lord really plowed close to her corn, didn't he? And she was uncomfortable uh, in the presence of a man who knew what an immoral, ungodly life she was living. And she wanted to get away from that subject in a hurry. So she changed it herself. She said, uh, Thou art a prophet, I see. And she said, Our fathers worshiped, and here's my subject now. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. Now, when the woman said that, as she stood there at the Jacob's well, uh, she could turn her eyes northward, just a little bit northward, and there was a mountain top. In fact, there are two mountains right there at Nabalus. As you go into the city of, of, of Samaria, you go between those mountains. And we've been told that those two idols, those golden idols that uh, that Jeroboam erected in Israel, one was placed on one mountain and the other was placed on the other mountain. And so when the Samaritan woman said, our fathers worshipped in that mountain, she was telling the truth. Because those false prophets that plagued the people of Israel oftentimes led the people into that mountain to bow down to those golden calves that Jeroboam set up About which Jeroboam said. These be the gods. That brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now this woman said. Our fathers worship in this mountain. And ye say. That in Jerusalem. Is the place where men ought to worship. Now there's no record the Lord said that. Now the Lord might have said that. And John might not have recorded it. But there's no record in the Bible. The Lord said that. I'd rather believe that this woman. jumped to this conclusion. Because she knew. That Jesus was from Judea and Jerusalem. And she was playing with the same envy. That we read about in our Sunday school lesson today. Against Judah. Because of Solomon's temple. And because of the advantage Judah had religiously. Judah was not perfect. But Judah never went as far away from God in apostasy as did Israel. And as a result of that Israel was envious against Judah. And that envy is expressed by this woman now when she said uh, to the Lord, uh, you say that men ought to worship in Jerusalem. Now there's no record the Lord said that. But she charged him with that because of her own envy against Judah and Jerusalem and the Jews at large. Now our fathers worshiped in this mountain. But ye say Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Now isn't it strange when, when you begin to deal with somebody about the Lord, many times they jump to the conclusion that you're trying to get them to change their religion. Like this woman. Uh, She had now come to the conclusion that the Lord was trying to get uh, close to her to change her religion. And she said, I want you to know that our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Here it is just outside the city of Samaria. Here's this mountain and the golden calf on top in that ancient day. And since that day, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you're not going to change me. I'm a Samaritan. You, you would not invite me to begin with. Your father's worshiped in Jerusalem. And you say that's the place to go. Now, the Lord was not trying to change her, her religion. The Lord was trying to give her water she needed. And so it is with me and others that try to convert people. When I try to convert a man, I'm not necessarily trying to get you to change your religion. I'm trying to get you to come to Jesus and to get converted, to get born again. And if you get born again, then you'll line up with the right group. If you get born again, you'll get in the right church. And that, the big thing that I'm concerned about is getting you born again, getting you saved by God's grace. Now, Jesus said in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain, nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not why." Now, brother, there's an indictment against that Samaritan religion. Jesus knew about Jeroboam and about the wicked kings of Israel who down through all those years had set up those golden calves in Samaria and worshiped those calves. And Jesus said, woman, you don't know what you've been worshiping. And surely she didn't know. The gods that those golden calves represented, set up by Jeroboam, did not exist. And Jesus said, woman, you don't know what you worship. But he said, we know what we worship. Down in Jerusalem at Solomon's temple, we know whom we have believed. We know whom we worship. And we can say the same thing in our day. The pagan world lying about us in gross darkness. The liberal world, the modernistic world lying about in the darkness of unfaith. They don't know what they're worshiping. But you and I know whom we have believed and we're persuaded as to who he is and what he is. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But Jesus went on to say, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship God in truth and in spirit. For God seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now I want you to note verses 23 and 24 as a text for a moment. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers, Now here we are gathered together in what we call a house of God, a Baptist church building. Made of brick and mortar and the pews you sit on, the pulpit I preach from, and the choir the choir occupies. We call this a house of God, a place of worship. And it is. And we claim to be true worshipers. Now around the world today, there are multitudes of people worshiping. At, a, at the shrine of a thousand gods which do not exist. And they're to be pitied, we send our missionaries to try to evangelize those people that bow to shrines of gods which do not exist. We classify ourselves, and rightly so, as the true worshippers of the true and living God. Jesus said, the time now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father. How? Two ways. In spirit and in truth. And I'll, I'd like to emphasize that to you today and I want you to carry it home with you. In our day we want a thousand things. We set up a thousand standards. And we imagine many things about what a worship ought to be. In some churches, they have to have the candles and the altar boys. In other churches, they have to have a choir that will chant some kind of an anthem or some kind of a musical song. They have to have certain aids. Some people have to have a picture on a wall draped with an open Bible and candles burning on either side as an aid to worship. I don't recommend that. I believe that the true worshipers of God must worship God not with candles, nor with a chanting choir, nor with a picture draped, nor with an open Bible, nor with two burning candles, nor with an altar in your bedroom or living room. They that worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. That's the only way in the world a man can worship God. You know nowadays, sometimes people come to church with preconceived notions about why why they come and what they expect when they come. You, You get an idea as to what a worship service ought to be. And if it doesn't reach the standard that you set up in your mind, then you go home and say, well, I didn't get much out of the service today. It just didn't do what I thought ought to have been done. And so you go out defeated. And the reason you go out defeated is because your method was wrong to begin with. Who am I or who are you? To set a certain standard to say, now, this is the standard that we're shooting for at Tabernacle Baptist Church. As we gather in to worship day, we expect thus and thus to happen in such and such a way. And if it doesn't happen as we expect it, if it doesn't reach the standard that we preconceive and set up in our minds, then we say, well, uh, we didn't worship today, did we? Now, where is the scripture for that? Uh, you don't have any scripture for that, do you? I heard, a, I heard a preacher say, I heard this with my own ears. He said, uh, when I preach, If somebody didn't walk the aisles as a result of my preaching, and I'm quoting verbatim, he said, I'm dead. And the reason I say that is because that's what he said. If somebody didn't walk the aisle when I preach, every time I preach, I'm dead. Now, that preacher set up a a preconceived standard of worship. He's imagined a certain level that he must attain if he worships God. Now he'd find difficulty. With a proof text for that either wouldn't he? There's no, no proof text in the Bible for that. There's no Bible that would grant that preacher. The privilege of setting up that kind of a standard. Now that means that if he sets up that kind of a standard for himself. Then I need to set up the same standard for myself. Well now I'm not prepared to do that. Because he can't give me a proof text. He can't show me in the Bible that I'm to set up that kind of a standard. No, that's not worship. You say, well, preacher, don't you want people to walk the aisle? Of course we do. Well, don't you want to reach a certain uh, climax in the worship and realize a certain blessing in the worship? Of course I do. But where is the man qualified to set that standard? Who, where is the man that has the knowledge sufficient to set up that standard? No, it's not a standard that we're shooting at when we come together at Tabernacle to sit down with an open Bible to worship God. But we come into this place to worship God in spirit and in truth with no standard. We We don't set up any preconceived goals. And uh, we, don't, we, don't, we, we don't imagine a preconceived emotional state. You would be surprised how many people get the idea that when they come to church, they've got to reach a certain emotional climax. I never will forget a number of years ago, or 10 years or longer, we had a trio come here to sing. I've even forgotten their names, and I'm glad I have. I never want to have them back to begin with. But they came here to sing, and, and I thought they did their best to try to stir you up. I mean, they really went through their ritual, and as far as I was able to discern, the only reason they went through their ritual was to stir me and you to a certain emotional pitch. You know, Tabernacle has the reputation of being an emotional congregation. Hallelujah. I'm glad it's that way. But Tabernacle also has the reputation of being wise and spiritual. And uh, we may be emotional, but we're not sucked in that easily. And that trio did their best to pump you up and pump me up. And it was very obvious and very evident. But you sat there just as quiet. And I was so proud of you. I said, praise God. Now that's not scriptural, that's not, that's not worshiping God. Now, oh yes, if we come together and the blessed spirit of God begins to lift our souls and cause us to mount up in the Lord as we did the other night, can God, as far as I'm concerned, God did that. When I came to church that night, I don't know whether I told you this or not during the sermon, but when I came to church that night, I said, Lord, I'd never preached on that text script in my life. And I said, I've only got one verse of scripture. Usually, I expound a number of verses as I have this morning. And I said to myself, how in the world can I preach an hour on one verse of scripture? And those thoughts are in my mind. And I said to myself, this is going to be hard tonight. <laughs> I made that up in my mind. This is going to be hard tonight. Lord, you'll sure have to help me. I'll never be able to preach an hour on one verse of scripture. Can God prepare a table or furnish a table in the, in the wilderness? I'll never do it. <laughs> And i was honest in that i had no idea god was going to set that table i had no idea in fact i was a little bit defeated and reluctant to even try to preach on the text when i came to the pulpit now god took over oh yes i didn't do that if i was going to pump you up i'd turn to to revelation 19. i wouldn't turn there if i if i was going to try to pump you up i'd try to pump up something else i'd try to a little more familiar scripture I wasn't trying to pump you up. God forbid I don't do that. God have mercy. And I resent anybody else trying to do it. Preacher or singer. It's unscriptural. But the Lord did that. And we never apologize for emotional climax that God gives to us, you see. But it's wrong for you to come into this church building on Sunday morning and Sunday night. And say, well, we're going to have it today. We're going to have it today. And we set out to try to reach that. That's as wrong as it can be. That's the wrong way to worship God. And if I came with that idea, if I came with the idea that this is going to be the day, and if it doesn't happen, I'm dead, that's as wrong as it can be. The hour is, and it has now come, said the Lord, when they that worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. Now let me say just a word about what that means. To worship God in the spirit means that I'm flexible, flexible in the hand of the Blessed Spirit of God, that I don't resist Him nor quench Him, that I will obey the Blessed Spirit doing what I feel the Spirit will have me do, saying what I feel the Spirit had have me say, with my mind upon the Holy Spirit, as I gather into the house of God, my mind's upon the Lord. When I come to church, I forget about the job, I forget about my bills, I forget about my problems, I forget about my aches and pain, I forget about my domestic problems. I forget about other financial burdens. I put all that ad- ad- aside and fasten my mind on God in the spirit, in the spirit, in the spirit. I wonder what's on the mind of some of you in the building. The way some of you are watching me, listening to me, you're thinking as I am right now. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if they're not folk in this building now that's thinking about what you're going to do in the morning at 7 o'clock when you punch the clock. Or what you're going to do tomorrow when you go to the bank. Or what you're going to cook for dinner tomorrow. Or what you're going to wear to, uh, to the office tomorrow. Well, you can't worship God with those things on your mind. You can't do it. And you come to church sometimes and somebody you're a little bit peeved at. Isn't it a shame that Christian people can't get along? And you sit there and say, well, I just don't like that person. I just don't like that man. I just don't like that woman. I just don't like that young person. You'll not worship God like that. Now, you may have somebody you don't like. I wouldn't say that all of us ought to like everybody in exactly the same measure. I think you have close friends, personal friends, and I certainly have no argument against that. But you ought to love everybody. You ought to love everybody. And you come to church and sit here with, with malice and envy and strife and unforgiveness and a little bit of anger toward anybody that sits with you in this building. You're the loser. You're not going to worship God like that. You're not in the spirit. Uh, you get your mind off that and put your mind on the Lord. Put your mind on the this, this scripture. Put your mind on your brethren. Put your mind on the Holy Spirit. Put your mind on the son of the Lord Jesus. Put your mind upon Calvary. Put your mind upon the songs that we sing together. And it's not going to be long until the wells of salvation will begin to spring up in your soul. And you'll begin to worship God in spirit. But you can't worship God with a thousand things in your mind. Now when you come to church, you ought to hang the things of the world in the vestibule. You may have to pick up some of them when you leave the church of necessity. But those things ought to be left in the vestibule when you sit on these pews. Those things ought to be left outside. Just hang them up. If you must pick them up after you you worship, then pick them up and you should go out. If you bring them into this building, you'll not worship God and you'll hinder those that desire to worship God, you see. Then it says also, we must worship God in truth. Now, this is the truth. This is the truth. Did you get what I say now? This is the truth. You will not worship God when you leave this book. That means that a liberal and a modernist doesn't know the first thing about worshiping God. Not the first thing. A man that will deny the Savior disqualifies himself from worshiping God. Now he, ha- he may have a beautiful service. And he may know how to organize a beautiful service. And put on a beautiful service. But if he doesn't believe the truth, he's not qualified to worship until he comes to worship God in the truth of this book. Now, as I gather in with you today, in my soul, I'm saying, Jesus, I believe that thou art the only begotten Son of God. I believe that you were virgin born. Jesus, I believe on the third day you came out of that grave and said to John, I'm he that was dead and was alive and was dead and am alive forevermore. Yeah. You sit here and you say, Lord Jesus, I believe that 40 days later you went up on the Mount of Olives and said goodbye to your disciples. And then you was received out of their sight and went back to heaven. You, you, you worship God in the truth. You're saying, Jesus, though I'm in Tabernacle Baptist Church right now, I believe that you're right by the throne of God on high. With your eye upon every one of your little children. With an innumerable company of angels ready to minister as ministered spirits to all of God's little children. You say, preacher, you're making a fundamentalist now. That's right. Only fundamentalists can worship God. If you don't believe the truth, you can't worship God. You sit in the church, you say, Lord Jesus, I'm listening for the trumpet. Let it sound, Father, I'm ready. Any day. just sound the trumpet. I'm ready to leave. Everything's fixed up. My wife's ready to go. My kid is ready to go. And I'm ready to go. I'm listening for the trumpet, Lord. And like young Elisha, you sit here looking toward the heavens, watching for the chariot. That's what it means to worship in the truth. And if there's one ounce of modernism in you, you can't worship God. If there's one bit of unfaith in you, you can't worship God. Jesus said to that woman, though she said, Our fathers worship in that mountain. Jesus said, you don't know what you worship. You don't know what you worship. You think Jesus knew what he meant? Knew what he's talking about? Sure he did. Jesus would not have said to that woman, you worship, you know not what, if it wasn't so. That woman all of her life had worshipped at a strange idol and a strange shrine. And she had never worshipped God in spirit and in truth. Though all of her lifetime she had worshipped. And could point out the place. And yet Jesus said, you never have worshiped. And there's a lot of people like that's never worship. Never worship. You go through the forms of it, but you never worship. Now when you come to church, let God have his way. Forget about your own whines and your own ideas and your own desires and your own aspirations and your own ambitions and get humble. If you got any envy in your soul, get it out. It's of the devil. If you've got any jealousy, and jealousy is an awful monster. If you have any jealousy in your soul, get it out. If you have any unforgiveness in your heart toward anybody, get it out of your heart. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's the only way in the world a Baptist or anybody else can worship God in spirit and in truth. May we bow our heads in prayer. Lord, help us to know this truth today. Help us to see the utter, utter, utter folly of trying to worship God through man-made rituals, forms of godliness and ceremonies that may abound. Help us to see that those things are vain and empty. And that humble people, true worshipers, Jesus called them, can indeed worship God in spirit and in truth. And we can worship in this place. And Grant Tabernacle might be characterized by the true worship of God, we pray. Oh God, we honor your high and exalted name. And we reverence your only begotten son and worship him as God and as Savior. And we recognize the blessed Holy Spirit with us blessed trinity help us to worship thee in spirit and in truth our heads are bowed and eyes are closed i wonder if there's somebody in the church today you say pastor i i want we thank you for listening to the tabernacle pulpit podcast if this sermon was a blessing to you please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the tabernacle pulpit podcast